Well, some 25 years ago, I suppose it was, when I was going through the arduous trial of ordination and licensure trials, one question I was asked was, which is the most Christological or Christ-centered epistle in the New Testament? And the answer is, of course, the book or the epistle of Hebrews. The inspired author, we really can't be sure of who this author is, but uh, this inspired author in, in this, what he calls a word of exhortation, he doesn't even really uh, bother with an introduction. He just blasts out of the gate like a top fuel dragster heading down the quarter mile uh, run and immediately blows us away with some staggering statements about this Jesus, about the one the church believes and the one the church proclaims. Statements that would be absolutely outrageous and crazy if they were not true, but they are indeed true. And he does this for one simple reason, for the encouragement of faith for those who would hear, or even the exhortation of faith, or the incitement of faith, and certainly for the assurance of faith. For believers need to know that their Lord, their Savior, their Jesus, their Christ The Son of God is the perfect and final Redeemer, and He is absolutely sovereign over all of creation and all of history. Because if you are going to live rightly as a faithful believer in this vain and corrupt world, you must believe right. And you can only believe right if you really know the one who is the object of your faith the one about whom Christianity is all about. You need to know who he is and what he has done. You see, back in this first century day, there were many threats against the believers. They had doubts. They had fears, perhaps occasional persecution. Some were tempted to fall back or to go back into Judaism. There were many troubles, uh, many concerns. Uh, They were difficult days. As we ourselves very much live in difficult days. And there's only one way then to believe and to live rightly, to grow as a believer and to endure as a believer, like the apostles with eyes beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth. You see, Christianity involves a radical transformation of our view. We are often told, and in fact, human nature itself would, would cause us to look within. But the Spirit says, look without. Look to Christ. Behold Christ. Behold His glory. So I want to do that this morning. Notice in verses 1 and 2, the author by the Spirit says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's pretty staggering. God spoke. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It's amazing. He goes on, however, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, this is really significant, and it shows this literary structure here shows us that a uh, a dramatic change has come. The history of redemption has 
made a turn. It has shifted from promise to accomplishment, from shadow and type to fulfillment, from realization to finalization. Because the one of whom the prophet spoke, the one who is foreshadowed in all those Old Testament ceremonies and, and types, he has now come. And this one is none other than the very Son of God. As Galatians 4, 4 Paul wrote, When the fullness of time has come, God sent forth His Son. And His Son speaks, His Son declares the word. We live in a, a very different day than the day in which I grew up and some of you grew up. And we live in a day of, of 24-7 media. I remember the day when the TV went off and it was like... <laughs> remember that? Some of you do. And in the days of 24-7 media, people are talking constantly. 24-7 news. Really? 24-7 weather. I mean, it's dry and sunny today. That's all you need to know. And we spend a lot of time listening to people. But God has spoken. God has spoken. And yet so few listen. So few have ears to hear. The Bible, the Bible says Jesus came to his own people. They didn't have time for him. They didn't care. They didn't have ears to hear. Just shut them up. He's a madman. No wonder the author says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. If you don't, if you don't remain anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be like a boat, like a sailboat, untied, or without the center board. It'll just drift away to wherever the winds blow it. See, the very creator of the world came into the world to speak to us and to confront our fears and our unbelief and our idolatry and to make us children of God. Are you listening? Children, are you listening? You take time away from all the media and all the music and all the shows and all the video. Are you listening? God spoke. Jesus spoke. Now in verse 3, which is our text for this morning, the author speaks very plainly about the supremacy of Jesus or the glory of Jesus. And it's a very bold statement to anyone familiar with the Old Testament because those ancient books speak very frequently of the glory of God or the glory of the Lord, the kabod of the Lord, which, which refers to his, it's a word that speaks of his heaviness or his weightiness, his significance, his worthiness, his excellence, his greatness. For example, in Deuteronomy 5.24, the people said to Moses, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and greatness. And that conjunction there, His glory and greatness, indicates those two ideas are one. His glory is His greatness, His supremacy, His majesty. And so God's revelation of His glory was the revelation of His divine being and nature and power that that he was separate from his creation, that he was above his creation, greater than his creation. He's unique, unlike all of the created world. And he revealed his glory to generate fear and reverence in the hearts of his people, that they might tremble before him and bow down before him and worship him as they ought to, that truth might abide in their hearts, they might reject humanism and, 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 and idolatry. And lies. For example, in 
Exodus 24, we read, Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring, devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Can you imagine? Would that generate perhaps fear? Awe? Reverence? And the author of this particular letter, he refers to that in chapter 12 when he write, writes, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And that's the point. You see, God displays His glory. He makes His glory known that we might respond and live with reverence and awe and in a truth toward Him. No longer in lies and in false ways and idolatry. Because He is God. Now with that in mind, let's look at what the author says about Jesus. The first phrase. He is the radiance of of the glory of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. It's similar to John 1.14. We have seen His glory, the apostle wrote. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Or 2 Corinthians 4.6, where Paul speaks of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the radiant light of God Himself. He's the shining forth of God's glory in His very being. The commentator Philip Hughes is right when he writes, this is nothing less than the essential glory of God Himself corresponding to the Shekinah glory which in the, which in the Old Testament signified the very presence of God in the midst of His people. You remember what the prophet said uh, regarding Jesus. He would be called Emmanuel, right? Which means God with us. The very God of very God among us, among with his, with his people. He is, he is the presence of God in our midst. You remember how John writes that the Word became flesh and He, he tabernacled with us, He tented with us. It's, it's like, like the tabernacle dwelt uh, in the midst of the people of God in the Old Testament days. Uh, here at Jesus tabernacles, he, he, He's with us. He is with uh, the Lord's, his own people in the wilderness. Now, prior to the resurrection, the glory of Jesus uh, was most clearly seen at the time of his transfiguration, which I think you remember uh, took, took place up where? On a mountain. An allusion there to Moses, when Moses was up on the mountain. And there, uh, Luke records that, he, that, that the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And so to just three, and just for a short while, God made it most obvious up to that time to his, again, these few disciples, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as the glory of God. In fact, Peter wrote, you remember years later, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. We were eyewitnesses like you might see an accident or, or, or a crime. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. We beheld it up on the mountain. In all of its wonder and awesomeness. Yet it was not only there that the Lord manifested His glory 
even in his humiliation as a state. I assume the pastor taught you about the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. Even in, even as, in, even in his earthly wanderings, apart from that transfiguration, he showed his glory. What? In his teaching. Even when he was 12 years old, the, the men, the elders, were amazed at his teaching. And others said he taught as one had, having authority. But of course, certainly in his miracles, in his healings, in his raising of the dead, in his giving sight to the blind, he manifested his glory. John tells us about the first of his signs, which Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, the changing of the water into wine. And what did John say? He manifested his glory. He manifested his glory. He revealed his glory as God. And Jesus himself said, if I'm not doing the works to those who are doubting, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. No problem. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, you don't believe my words, you don't believe my testimony, believe the works. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You see, our Lord's works what he did proved his identity as the Son of God. Proved that the power of God was in him. Because they were the works of God himself. He was doing the works of his Father. He is one with the Father. He is of one substance and equal with the Father. So he is the radiance of the glory of God. And those of us who truly believe, those who are believers, we see see this now we have eyes of faith that to some extent behold the glory of the lord jesus christ but we will see it more clearly in the life to come and we long for that and jesus said father i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am for what reason to see my glory that is the heart of the believer to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ to behold him in his majesty and power and dominion that is what we long for that is what we'll have in heaven someone has said hell is not hell is only hell because Jesus isn't there and heaven is heaven because Jesus is there if Jesus went to hell, hell would be heaven. We, we long for the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and to behold his glory. That's our longing. And that's also our destiny, to dwell with him in his glory. And therefore, you and I must live now, today, tomorrow, the next day, as long as we have breath in this life, to behold his glory, to live for his glory, with a heart longing for his glory, to see his glory. That's why the Shorter Catechism is absolutely right when at the very beginning it says man's chief end is what? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And John Piper said you're only glorifying God, I'm sorry, you're only enjoying God if you're glorifying God. In Psalm chapter 61, there's a prayer at the beginning. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint, 
Have you prayed this prayer before? Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. That's our longing. The psalmist said, uh, in your light do we see light. If you want life, if you want to walk in the light and not in the darkness, you must walk by faith in Jesus, clinging to Him, beholding Him, seeking Him, desiring Him. Because He is the radiance of the glory of God. Furthermore, the second phrase, He is the exact imprint of of his nature. Now this speaks of correspondence that Jesus exactly corresponds to the nature of God. And the word has uh, been brought into our English language as the word character, which is a mark or an engraving which exactly corresponds to the pattern used to make that mark. In fact, we even speak of of letters sometimes, right, as characters. So so the author is saying that Jesus is the exact representation or the perfect expression of the divine nature. And and Jesus uh, spoke of this himself when Philip came to him and Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus, I can imagine him scratching his head saying, what? You know, if he was almighty, he'd say, Really? You know, are you so clueless? He said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Because Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. But notice he didn't say there, I am the Father. It's an important distinction. Because the Godhead is Trinitarian and not Unitarian. Three persons, one God. And the Son perfectly corresponds to the Father and is therefore the clear revelation of God. See, there was no time ever, past, present, or future, when the Son is against the Father or the Father against the Son. Never. In complete harmony, total unity, in the Godhead. And so when Jesus spoke, he, said, he didn't speak his own words, he spoke the Father's words. The works he did were the Father's works. There was an exact correspondence because the Son is the perfect image of the Father. And so the more you know of Jesus, the more you know of God, the more you know of the Father. The Son is the perfect image. Sometimes there are, there's a a correspondence between a son and his father. Well, there's perfect correspondence here. And so, when you see our Lord's compassion and patience and tenderness and mercy, those are the Father's same compassion and mercy and tenderness and kindness and goodness. There's no fight between them. There's a perfect unity. The Son always imaging the Father. And that's why Jesus is greater than Moses. Greater than the prophets. Greater than the angels, even. Because He and God are one. While fully man, 
He's also fully God. Two perfect natures, as our confession says, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So Christ, having those two natures, is the perfect Redeemer. The only Redeemer. The only mediator between God and man. He's like man to identify with us, to represent us yet without sin, and yet God in all of his perfections. So able to restore man to the image of God. And that's what he's doing in the gospel. That's what he's doing in your life. And then my life, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Isn't that, isn't that marvelous? Or Romans chapter 8, we all know verse 28 of Romans 8, right? But how about verse 29? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be, what? Conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's incredible, isn't it not? If salvation is, is not merely about salvation from the guilt of sin, but it's also salvation from the power and the effects of sin. See, we who were created in the image of God and yet fallen and corrupted, now redeemed, are being renewed in the image of God. There's a bumper sticker. As you get to know me, you know me that I, and this is a really, a, it's not a very good thing anymore, but I'm sort of a connoisseur of bumper stickers. I don't collect them, I read them. Because they're a, really a fascinating people study. And, and as, a, as a preacher, as a pastor, you kind of have to be a, a study of people. But one said years ago, and some of you remember this, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Well, that's okay as far as it stands, but it's not adequate. Because we who are forgiven are also being transformed into the image of the one in whom we are forgiven. The one who purchased our salvation. See, we who are justified are also being sanctified as a work of God's free grace. And we're awaiting glorification as that final act of God's free grace. And so, yes, Christians aren't perfect. Yes, we are forgiven, but we are also sanctified. We are being transformed, becoming more and more like Jesus. And again, as I said earlier, that's really what Christianity is all about. That's, that should be the longing of your heart. If you are a believer, it will be the longing of your heart to be like Jesus to be transformed, to renewed, to behold His glory and to dwell with Him, to be with Him and to be like Him. Because when you come to, to love God, you necessarily, though not consistently, hate your sin. Yes, we do sin. Yes, we have moments of, of cherishing it, perhaps, but it's just a moment. Our patterns, we hate our sin. We turn away from our sin because we want more than to be forgiven. That's a wonderful start. We want more than to be forgiven. We want to be renewed. We want to be transformed. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be renewed in the whole man. 
And Jesus is able to do that because he has the power. The third phrase, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And this refers to his rule and his kingship and his sovereignty and his authority over all creation. It means he's governing and directing all things. It's the doctrine of providence. He's not just the one through whom all things were made, but he's the one who, who directs and governs and rules. But the focus here is on redemption because Jesus is directing all things redemptively to the end for which they were predestined. To paradise restored, really. Believers dwelling eternally in the presence and glory of God. It's been said that history is his story, taking those letters and breaking them up. It's really true. Meaning, it's not a story God tells, it's a story that God directs. Whatever happens, happens because God has ordained it to happen. God has caused it to happen. See, the prophets could foretell what was going to happen because they were saying what God was going to do, what God was going to make happen. That's greatly encouraging, is it not? Especially in a world like ours, it's, it's heartening. There's, there's, there's terrible evil in the world. Even in my very short lifetime, I've seen tremendous changes. And there's great evil just unleashed on the streets. I don't know how these children survive anymore. It's everywhere. Forces that oppose God increasing, it seems, by the week, by the month. Rebellion. There's apostasy in the churches. Sound churches going liberal by the year. Wandering from the Word of God. Wandering from truth and faithfulness. Unbelief is rampant, and yet the Lord has set His King on Zion. Psalm 2 is so wonderful. But as for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree, the Lord has said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel see many rulers or at least perhaps a few rulers of the world think they are directing history perhaps wealthy powerful men think they are directing history but they are foolish as the lord caused nebuchadnezzar one so-called world ruler he came he became uh, very foolish in his own mind and certainly in the eyes of others but the fact is, Jesus Christ is directing history. We must be sure of it. That's the basic message, in fact, of the final book of the Bible, Revelation. It discloses the rule of Christ, not just over the churches, we see that in chapters 2 and 3, but over the nations, over kings, over the entire world, over history. We see that in a series of visions. The judgment of all evil, the glorification of the church, and the renewal of all things. I love the text. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth had passed away, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing many sons to glory. He's bringing his children to glory. All things to the predestined end, to paradise restored, to the glory of, of God dwelling among his people. He is the final word. 
He is the Son of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is supreme. He has no peer. He has no equal. There's no one who can stand next to Him. There's no threat to His rule. His victory is secure. And if you are in Christ, your redemption is secure. Your place, your eternity is secure. So how can you live faithfully as a believer? How can you endure difficult times and remain true? How can you avoid the snare of liberalism and apostasy and materialism and immorality and countless isms today? How can you survive, even thrive in in such dark times as we live in today? I don't know, maybe you find hope in a new president. Maybe you find hope in a soon-to-be-changing Supreme Court. I say, been there, done that. You know, I'm not knocking anybody, but isn't the uh, definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? The fact is, uh, Hebrews is all about Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? It shows us that your life and my life must be all about Jesus Christ. Our lives must be Christocentric. And Christ proclaiming. And Christ seeking. And so set your path on seeking in every moment. And in every matter. The glory and majesty and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you won't stray. You won't wander. Oh, you'll still sin because we are weak. But the thrust of your life, the path of your life will be toward the celestial city faithfully as a pilgrim. You won't seek lesser glories if you know the great glory, the majestic glory, the one who is above all and, and over all. And your, your heart will be like the psalmist who said, whom have, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire beside you. For this reason, the author in chapter 12, he exhorts us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What's he say? Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then he says, consider him. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Don't look within. Look without. Look to Jesus. Consider him who endured. Behold his glory. And you will stay on the right path faithfully enduring to the end.